love the Word of God. Um, I'll tell you something that's kind of taken place here as we've opened up the pages of the Gospel of John is a big slowdown. And we've been charging through the Scriptures, you know, 11 years, I realize, is a long time, but we've been, that's been at a good pace. Uh, trying to get through and, and study through and not miss anything, but keep things moving. And uh, here we've landed at the Gospel of John, which is for us the beginning of the New Testament because we've already covered Matthew, Mark, and Luke. If you weren't with us when we covered those those Gospels, I encourage you to go back and listen to them. We've done those over the years as well. They're online. But the Gospel of John, I hit this and it was like God said, All right, now take your time. So we're going to take our time. And even with this teaching this morning, John 3, we'll begin in verse 9, but the story begins in verse 1, runs all the way through verse 21. My intention last week was to do the whole teaching of Jesus with Nicodemus, and we got through the first few verses. So I figured, well, that's okay, I'll part two this thing. Well, there's going to be a part three, Lord willing, next week, because there's so much to consider here, and we want to rest in the Lord and not rush ahead of the Lord. So let's take a look at this this morning. John chapter 3, verse 9. In the middle of that interview, that evening interview between Nicodemus and Jesus, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Father, we bow to you this morning. We come to enter our rest. Because coming into your presence is rest of spirit, and it is rest of mind, and it is rest of body. And we come to be at peace in you and before you because, Lord, we recognize in the Son there is life. And I pray that your word would just settle on us this morning and and bring peace, Lord, where there's striving. And bring comfort where there's hurt. Bring encouragement, Father, where there's discouragement. And faith where there's doubt. We just ask you to move and to breathe into us and to speak your word. And Father, across the, the moments this morning, both first and second service, I just pray that your Spirit would reach out to believers and disbelievers alike and give us faith to trust in Jesus where we find life. And we ask your Holy Spirit to teach us now and open our, our minds to these things, open our spirits to understanding in Jesus' name. Amen. I was really disappointed. Uh, one of my favorite musicians, artists, growing up was Kenny Loggins. Some of you remember, your mama don't dance and your daddy don't rock and roll. 
And that's your problem. See, that was his solution. That's your problem right there, dude. <laughs> Others of you remember other songs that he came out with. I, I was uh, a big fan of Kenny Loggins in the early 80s. Well, it turns out in the uh, early, late 80s, early 90s, he and his wife, Eva Ean Loggins, divorced. And I was disappointed because they had written some songs together and I thought it was cool that in the, in the music business you had a couple that was together. And, and so they, they divorced and Kenny met a woman named Julia who he married and together it, it was like a rebirth for him. And many of you probably didn't follow these things. I did. In the early 90s, he released an album and wrote a book by the same title called The Unimaginable Life. Lessons on the Path to Love. Talking about how in his first marriage it really wasn't about love, but now, now in his second marriage, it's all about the love. And he, he grew his hair out longer again and regrew his beard. And man, it was hippie time all over again. And I watched these things and I heard that album and I, you know, I was just disappointed. The unimaginable life. Gang, the unimaginable life is hard to get your arms around. Fourteen years later, Kenny Loggins and Julia, his second wife, divorced. He's still doing music. He's, he's still on the scene. Um, pretty sure he's, he's a single guy right now. But I've been to two or three Kenny Loggins concerts. The last one I went to was after his second divorce, and he seemed like a beaten man. He didn't have the energy. He's good, he's got a phenomenal voice, great guitar player, but just wasn't the presence that he had been before. And I wondered, you know, maybe he was having an off night, but here's the reality. People are searching and striving for the unimaginable life, something bigger, something better, something greater than what we have. And it's hard to find. And it galls people because they can't get their fingers on it, they can't wrap their arms around it. It's a struggle And it's because the very issue of life that must be addressed is eternity. The very issue of life, the biggest issue of any issue of life that there is, is God. But if people don't take the time to consider Him, to think about eternal life, not just today, tomorrow, and getting through next week, we will always be striving, always frustrated. We will never quite attain the unimaginable life. Anyone discouraged today? Anyone feeling demoralized or defeated or like the New England Patriots, maybe just a little deflated? (laughs) The message of eternal life in Jesus Christ is absolutely outlandish, it's unearthly, it's otherworldly, and my friends, it is absolutely true. And until you face that reality, your life will be a struggle. Oh, so you're saying when I face the reality, my life will no longer be a struggle? No, you'll still have hard times, you'll still have challenges, but you will, like Brian this morning, be able to stop and go, Lord, Lord, And come into the presence of the eternal. Knowing that whatever the circumstances of our lives are today, we have the eternal life, the unimaginable life. On that breezy night in Jerusalem, as the clamor and the commotion of the Passover died down, the crowd settled into their holiday homes in the calm Judean twilight. 
Nicodemus found his way through the streets to meet with Jesus. And a single question settled on this Jewish teacher, this Jewish leader's mind as he listened to the Son of God pour out words of eternal life. He listened and he said, How can these things be? How can these things be? The old teacher is shaken by the young rabbi. The highly trained, highly schooled Pharisee by the Galilean transient teacher. And he sits there in awe at the words coming out of Jesus' mouth and he wants to know. Everything he knew about the kingdom of God is now thrown into question with a few simple statements by Jesus. Even the assurance of his Jewish heritage and his upbringing was deflated as Jesus said, unless one is born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. He said, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You must be born again. And so Nicodemus, back on his heels, says, how can these things be? How many have asked the same question of of God, of life, of eternity? Perhaps you're one of those who came to a church service. You sat down and the preacher was preaching and the music was going and you sat there the whole thing going, I don't know. I mean, how can these things be? Really? I hear what he's yammering about, but he was probably raised with all that. This is a culture that's just kind of, I'm not familiar with. How can these things be? And how many times have you heard the message of the gospel and shaken it off because you just want to deal with it? How often times do people face the truth and ignore it because the truth is a pain in the neck? The truth might require change. The truth might rattle what I'm comfortable with. My traditions, my upbringing, my history. I love Jesus for so many reasons, but one of those is that He brings the truth. You know, when we started off last week, He he comes to Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Him and, and, and starts to imply, you know, you must be from God, what's going on here? And Jesus cuts to the chase. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Truth just lays it out. Doesn't hold it back. You know, truth calls for courage. The most courageous thing a person can do is not only ask the hard questions, but ask the hard questions and stick around to hear the answers. It's a dodge when someone throws out those those uh, questions that would undermine maybe the truth of the Bible or undermine Jesus or undermine the church. They throw out those questions and then walk away. <laughs> that was too hard for that guy to understand. That's just a smokescreen. And it's cowardly. Truth invites courage. Nicodemus had the choice. Think about this. This Jewish teacher could have walked. He could have stormed off. He could have been disgusted. He could have rolled his eyes and said, What do you know? Whippersnapper, kid in your 30s. What do you know? I'm a teacher of Israel. You're talking gibberish. And he could have stood up and walked away. Why didn't he? Nicodemus had courage. He was willing to see the conversation through. Not only that, as we looked at last week, he was willing to see Jesus through. He would see Jesus all the way through his death. 
even to His burial, and I believe after His resurrection. But the Scripture tells us Nicodemus just kind of keeps showing up. He's, he's checking out truth. He does not walk away. Every person here has the same option today. Listen and stay or walk away. There's the door. No one's holding you. We have no seatbelts at the Bridge Christian Fellowship. <laughs> Listen and stay or walk away. But know this. Jesus says in Luke 6.47, Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them... I will show you whom he's like. He's like a man who, building a house, dug deep, laid a foundation on the rock, and when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. That's someone who will come, listen, and do what I'm talking about. Rock solid. Even when life gets tough. However, Jesus said, the one who has heard and not acted, maybe you've been to a church service, you've heard a teaching or two, but you're not acting on it. It's like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation and the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed and the ruin of that house was great. And what I like about Nicodemus is he comes and he hears and he begins to do. He courageously seeks the truth. Kept seeking. Kept asking. Kept knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. Because this man wanted the answer. He wanted to know. He was steeped in tradition and heritage and teaching. And yet he said, that's not enough for me. I want the truth. How about you? I mean, are you content in your traditions? Some are. Or are you willing to dig deep? Are you willing to not only hear the truth, but to act on it? And so Jesus answers him, How can these things be, he says? Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen and you do not accept our testimony. And that's the issue. Will you accept his testimony? Will you accept His witness? Now, notice that Jesus says this in the second person plural. Or first person plural. We speak. First person plural. We speak. We know. We testify of what we have seen. It's the royal we. We will bless thee with our words. You know, why does He talk like this? Why doesn't He just tell Nicodemus? I mean, remember, this conversation is one-on-one. This is not preaching to the crowd. This is not a big, you know, open air auditorium where the Lord is espousing the words of God. He's just talking to Nicodemus. We speak. (laughs) We know. We testify of what we have seen. What's up with that, Jesus? Jesus engages here, and I want you to get this, the evidence of many witnesses, not just one. He doesn't say, I speak, I know, I testify. He says, we, because Christianity is a faith based on many witnesses. Multiple witnesses. It's not a religion based on the claim of one, like Mormonism. Mormonism is based on the claim of one man, Joseph Smith. Who claims to have had a vision, who claims to have seen golden plates... 
the three so-called witnesses of Joseph Smith, who claimed that, oh yeah, we saw those golden plates as well, all three recanted before they died. No, we actually didn't. No, didn't see them. No, didn't. Just Joe. Islam is based on the witness of one man, Muhammad. Well, God told me this and this is what we're going to do. How do you know? How can we trust you? You're you're only one guy. Why would I believe the word of just one person? And so many other religions in the world that are based on the substance of a single source. Oh, well, he said so. How do you know he's not lying? Well, how do you know Jesus isn't lying? Many witnesses. We speak. We know. We testify. And it is a big we. (laughs) It's a large group of witnesses. It begins with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, so you could say right off the bat, it's the triune we. That Jesus is speaking with a degree of royalty because He is God. And so He can say we. We speak of what we know. Who? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We testify to what we've seen. Who? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 31, If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. In other words, why would you believe me if I'm the only one saying this? But, he goes on, There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. Oh wait, there's more than one? Yeah, we. John 8, 17, Even in your law it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. And that was Hebrew law. That's Torah right there, baby. You don't believe something unless you have at least dos manos. (laughs) You got two who are saying, this is the deal. Well, how do I know? Well, I, I was there. I saw that. Two of us together. And so the Lord says, I am he who testifies about myself and the father who sent me testifies about me Two. But there's more. Acts 5.32 says, We are witnesses of these things, Peter writes, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. See, there's another witness there. There's Father, there's Son, and there's Spirit. You know how the Spirit testifies? Right here. His Spirit testifies with my Spirit that I'm a child of God. Rick, how do you know you're a child of God? i got a witness. Can I get a witness? I have a witness in my heart. And I have told you before... Christians, if you claim to be a Christian, but you don't have a witness in your heart that you're a child of God, something's missing here. Because the Bible tells us, His Spirit tells my spirit. So I know. I am not a shred frightened of the possibility that I might not be with Jesus in eternity. I know I'll be with Him. Why? Because you're so good? No! Because he's so good and he has told me over and over, I got you, Rick. So Father, Son, Spirit, the Word of God is a witness. An indisputable witness. The most, you all know, the most criticized book in history. The one that's been looked at and scrutinized more than any other. And yet it just keeps holding up. After a while, the critics are silent because, man, we can't keep fighting this because we're going to be proved wrong ourselves. John 5.39, Jesus says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify of Me. 
This is a book of the testimony of Jesus Christ. I love what John Corson says about this. He says, this isn't a manual, it's Emmanuel. <laughs> this is not a manual for living. This is not, read this book, keep these sayings and these words, and you'll have a better life. No, you won't. If all you're doing is trying to live by the book, and not go to the one to whom the book is written about, you're going to have religion. But the book is about Jesus. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me, he says. And so the book brings us to him. And that's the value of Bible study. That's the value of the Word of God, of being in the Word, because it points us to the Word, Jesus Christ. So you have Father, Son, Spirit, you've got the Word of God. All of these are witnesses. Revelation 19.10 says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's the whole entire point. You all know this, right? Two-thirds of the Bible, almost two-thirds of the Bible. It's actually more like two-fifths, but it's real close to the two-thirds mark. It's a lot. Is prophecy. There's no other religious book like that. Prophecy spoken, prophecy fulfilled, prophecy yet to come. And it's all in this amazing book, all of it testifying to Jesus. Who is testified about by the Father. Who is testified by the Spirit. Who is testified by the Word itself. And yet, that's not enough. We speak of what we know. We testify of what we have seen. God invited an entire mountain range of human testimony. He didn't just leave it to one or two or three. 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, John writes, What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ, the eternal we. John says, I'm part of the deal. I'm a witness. I testify to what I've seen. And so do the rest of the apostles, and so do the disciples who were there. Paul says, as many as 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 or 4. 500 people! Do you realize what an outlandish claim that was for Paul to make? For him to write down? Paul, don't say that! (laughs) Because, you know, they can can go look. People can say, well, if there's 500, I'm just going to start asking around. Because when Paul wrote that, most of those 500 were still alive. Standing up, able to say, hey, I've seen him. Resurrected. I saw him post cross, post burial. I've seen him alive. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3 says, How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. Many witnesses. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His will. Many, many witnesses. No wonder what the world saw after the death, burial, and resurrection of this itinerant rabbi was a massive groundswell of Christianity. Huge numbers of people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Wave after wave after wave of faith. And Christian brothers and sisters, don't be discouraged. The wave is still rolling. Salvation is still come to this world. People are still coming to faith in Jesus. Still believing in Jesus. We're seeing it in massive levels in the Middle East and Africa. Why aren't we seeing it in America? We have Moses and the prophets. We just need to listen to them. 
It's not enough of America hearing the Word of God. That's our responsibility. Because you see, we're part of the we. I'm not part of the Trinity. I know it's a shocker for you. I am not the Word incarnate. But I'm a witness. And I am in the last class of witnesses. That is all the people to whom God willed to make known the truth. I'm a witness. Oh, Rick, this happened 2,000 years ago. How are you a witness? I am a witness to what He has done in my life. Jesus said in John 20, 29, Because you have seen Me and you believe, (laughs) blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. We are part of the witness class. We are involved in this plural we. Along with Father, Son, Spirit, Word, early disciples, apostles, we're part of the deal, gang. We're the witnesses. But if the witnesses won't take the stand, who's going to hear? If the witnesses won't declare what they know, what we've heard, what He's done in us, why don't we do it more? Why are we not more evangelical? They call us evangelicals. Why aren't we more so? Well, we're afraid that we're going to get halfway into the testimony and the cross-examination is going to you know, embarrass us. We won't have all the answers. I don't have all the answers. I just have one answer and His name is Jesus. You know? I don't know about all that other stuff. I know about Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. I've told you that is the best mode to take the Word of God to people in this world. Not arguing over evolution which is bunk anyway, but don't argue it. Because if someone is so sold out on evolution, say, okay, whatever, you can wander around in that area, but let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you what Jesus has done in my life. Let me tell you what happens when I go, Lord. We are witnesses, gang. 1 Peter 1, verse 8 says, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Isn't that weird? But it's true. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. We rejoice. You know when we're worshiping, we are witnessing? Right then. If someone is disbelieving, non-believing, walks in the door and sits down and starts to watch people worship, sees the joy on their faces, sees hands uplifted in praise, sees people actually excited about Jesus, it does something. What happens when they walk in the door, sit down, and we're all seated? And praise and worship is going on, but we are stone-faced, hands down, not enjoying the moment at all. What does that say about how we love Jesus? Conviction! Do you love the Lord? Let me just ask you the question. Do you love the Lord? Alright, so allow the joy inexpressible in that love, in that faith to come out. It's a witness. Does your face light up when someone says, Jesus, I love Him. He's so cool. Why do you get all excited when you hear the name Jesus? Let me tell you. He's amazing. Let me tell you what... He's done in my life. I can't tell you about everybody else. I can't quote you every scripture in the Bible. I can't tell you the whole history of the thing. But I can tell you what He's done to me. I'm a witness. Fellow followers of Jesus recognize that. We have not seen Him, but we know Him. And we love Him. And we are in the plural we of Jesus' statement. We speak of what we know. 
We testify of what we have seen. It is up then to the world, up to our friends, our families, those around us. It's up to them to decide if they want to accept or reject that testimony. In the meantime, we just keep testifying. And we say, listen and stay, or walk away. That's your choice. But it's my choice to love the Lord. Verse 12, Jesus says, If I told you earthly things, and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? We talked about this at length Wednesday night, and if you weren't there, you might want to go listen to it. And by the way, it's not, it's not my desire, my design that everybody go listen to Pastor Rick's teachings. I just want everybody to hear the Word. And we talked about some stuff Wednesday night that was just blowing my mind. If my hair is shorter today, that's why. We talked about the difference between understanding God from an earthly perspective or a heavenly perspective. And it is so radically different. And if you try to figure God out from earth, you're not going to understand If you try to listen and do human reasoning, if you've got earth in your ears or dirt on the brain, you're going to have trouble hearing God. So Jesus says to Nicodemus, look, I've explained some things here in a physical way. And you're not getting it. What do you mean? Well, I compared it to birth. How much more natural do you get than childbirth? Everybody understands birth. You've got to be born again. Oh, like, okay, so I came from one position to a new one. That's what he's talking about. But Nicodemus is going, well, born again, I'll call mom, but she's not going to be real happy about the idea. <laughs> he says, I spoke to you about the wind. You know what the wind does. You can't see it. You don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. But you hear the sound of it. You know the effect of it, right? You can see it played out, even though you can't touch it. Same with those who are born in the Spirit. Get, get it? And Nicodemus is like... Huh? And Jesus says, look, I've talked to you about things like this with physical explanation, natural, physical examples. How are you going to get it? If you're not getting that, how are you going to get it when I start to talk supernaturally? When I start to explain things in a spiritual way? Here's what I'm getting at. You're not going to get it without His Spirit. And I'm talking about someone who doesn't believe in Jesus at all. Is not going to come to faith in Jesus without His Spirit. You're not going to understand without His Spirit. Christians who struggle understanding is because you're trying to understand in the flesh without His Spirit. Non-believers who are rejecting God and standing back and pushing back against you know those who are walking away, it's because they won't allow a moment of the Spirit to be at work in their lives. You've got to have the Spirit to understand spiritual things. You need the Spirit of the Lord <laughs> to get spiritual. Yeah, but I don't even know if I believe there's a Spirit yet, someone might say. Listen, it begins with courageous humility. Courage enough to say... Okay, I've heard a lot of witnesses. I keep hearing this Bible stuff, and I keep hearing the name Jesus. Okay, if this is true, Lord, help me. If if this is if you're really there, then I want to believe in you. Now that's a courageous step. It doesn't sound like much, it's just a sentence, but that is a courageous step to take. If this is legitimate, 
Show me and I will follow you. You know what you've just done? You've just invited the Spirit to be at work in your heart. You've just invited the Spirit to show you spiritual things so that you might understand. We come from, as we talked about last week, every one of us comes from a place of tremendous lack. You cannot get this on your own. You've got to have the help of God to understand God. And He is desiring to help. He wants to help. Are you willing to ask Him? Now, many of you are believers, so you're going, well, I did ask Him, Rick. Why are we talking about this? Because you know people who are afraid to ask. And it might not be a bad idea just to say, hey, listen, I know you're struggling with all this and you you just can't see it. Why don't you take a risk? Why don't you take a risk and say, God, if you're really there, show me. Now, why would a believer not say that? Because we're afraid, what if God doesn't show himself then? What if God doesn't act on that? He told us he will. That's what the Spirit is doing. John 5.16 tells us that the Jews were persecuting Jesus for this reason, because He was doing things on the Sabbath. And Jesus answered and He said this to them, Listen, my Father is working until now. And I myself am working. What do you mean, Jesus? God doesn't take a day off. He's working. What's He doing? Solving problems in the Middle East? No. What's He doing? He's searching to and fro throughout the world, every heart, every spirit. He is searching for anyone who says, God, yeah, what, what, I'm here. Lord, yes, I'll help. Jesus, yeah. He is at work so that we might rest. John 16.8, Jesus says, When the Spirit comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and judge and, and righteousness and judgment. That's what He does. He's the convictor. He's the one who gets a hold of a heart. He's the one who hears the person say, Lord, help me understand. And He goes, alright, let me show you some things. And, Ugh, I need some help here. He's at work. He searches, He stirs, He convicts, and the question simply comes then back to the individual, listen and stay or walk away. He is at work. So Jesus says, if I told you earthly things, you don't believe how you believe. If I tell you heavenly things, the implicit answer is, my spirit is the only way you're going to understand this stuff. Verse 13, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven the Son of Man. Again, Jesus is just so cool. Listen again to what He said. No one, no one has ascended into heaven, but He who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Books about life after death experiences fly off the shelves. They're always bestsellers. The boy who went to heaven, or not. Because that one was recanted, you know. Heavenly light. I saw the light. I died and I went there and I'm back to tell you about it. I understand why non-believers buy those books. I do not understand why believers do. And you will not see one of those out on our shelves. And if someone puts one out there, you're going to hear about it from me. Ooh. <laughs> What's the problem with those books, Rick? Hey, we already have the number one bestseller in all the world on life after death. Why do you want to read about it from someone else? 
Jesus already said, I was dead and I'm alive. How about listening to me? How about letting me explain to you? But it's more than that. Jesus didn't just die and come back. Jesus came from heaven in the first place. And then went back. Who better qualified than Jesus to talk about these things? The Bible says, Ecclesiastes 3.11, I love this verse, He has set eternity in their heart. Yet, so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. What does that mean? It means every human being knows there's more. We know. I don't care if you call yourself an atheist, an agnostic, whatever. You know, in your heart of hearts, there's something more than this. Well, then why is a person an atheist? Because they don't want to know it. Because they're rejecting the idea. But we know there's something in the heart of every man and woman that says, this isn't it. He said eternity in our hearts. But He did it in such a way that we're not going to find out what's up. And that's, that's a loose translation. He gave us a sense of eternity, but not the full understanding of it. Why would you do that, God? So we would come to Him to understand. I'll give you a sense of this, but once you start thinking about it, you're going to have to come talk to me about it. That's the deal. We parents do that all the time with our kids. You're going to have to talk to your mother about that one. <laughs> it's one of my favorite things to say. Dad, can I do this? Talk to mom. You know. But dad, I want to be out with my friends. You know, I want to go on a trip for two weeks. Here's mommy. <laughs> God says you're going to have to come to me. You're going to have to talk to me. You're going to have to listen to me. And when it comes to eternity and heaven, gang, I would rather get directions from someone who knows the root well. Not someone who can talk about it because they were in a flatline state. I'm just not, I'm sorry, I'm not trusting it. Oh, you don't believe any of those books? I have a hard time, yeah, believing a lot of that stuff. Oh, but it sounded so good. Kid talked about a big horse with a rainbow. Oh, neat. I see that on My Little Pony every morning with my kids. You know, whatever. Are are some of those books accurate? I honestly don't know. I know this one is. And I know not only did he die and and return there, he came from there first. In fact, note the way Jesus says it. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. I had to first come down before I could go back. Now, we got to do a little jumping around here in the Word. Jesus is not being mysterious here. Not at all. And He's not even simply supporting His right to say what He's saying. He is directing this Bible answer man of Israel... Nicodemus to a well-known proverb that Nicodemus would know. Proverbs chapter 30. Why don't you turn back there in your Bible? It's Proverbs 30. It's kind of a center left in your Bibles. Proverbs chapter 30 in verse 1. It is a proverb of a man named Agur. The words of Agur... We're told. Agur, which means gatherer. The son of Yake, which means blameless. The oracle, verse 1, 
The man declares to Ithiel, to Ithiel and Ukal. Ithiel and Ukal. That's weird. What does that mean? I'll tell you in a minute. Verse 2. Surely I am more stupid than any man, and I do not have the understanding of a man. Now that's a great way to start out a proverb. I'm going to tell you something really wise here, but you need to understand before I do, I'm an idiot. Why would you listen to this guy? (laughs) Neither have I learned wisdom, nor do I have knowledge of the Holy One. So basically I'm coming to you from a tremendous lack. I've got nothing smart to say, but I'm going to tell you something pretty wise. And he says, who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name or his son's name? Surely you know. Well, this Agur obviously doesn't know, and his name's not Shirley. But he starts out this proverb. This Verse 4 is amazing. It's wonderful. It's glorious. It's huge. But before he says that, he says, I'm an idiot. Why? He's saying, I'm going to tell you something that could not come from me. I'm going to share with you something that I am not smart enough to figure out, but I'm going to share it anyway. Just so you understand, beforehand, I didn't work this out in my brain. I didn't write this down. I didn't come up with this. Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has ascended and descended? Well, that's what Jesus said. Who's gathered the wind in his fist? Well, I don't know. You hear the wind comes and goes. You hear the sound of it. You don't know where it's come from, where it's going. So is someone who's born of the Spirit, Jesus said. Who's wrapped the waters in his garment? Oh, I don't know. Maybe him who causes you to be born of water and the Spirit. Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And I love this. Or his son's name. Yahweh and Yeshua. And he says, surely you know. Why is he talking like this? Well, it's interesting because this guy, Agur, declares this to Ithiel and Ukal. Well, what does Ithiel mean? God is with me. What does Ukal mean? He who prevails. It's almost as though this Agur is talking to the Father and the Son. Crying out to God is with me, that would be Jesus, and one who prevails, that would be the Lord. Crying out, perhaps, to them. Now, it's possible that Ithiel and Ukal were just his sons, his kids. That's, you know, I'll give you that one. Or maybe he's crying out in prayer. Maybe Agur in this proverb is saying, I don't know anything. I'm an idiot. I haven't learned anything. I don't have knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended and descended? And who has gathered the wind in his fist and wrapped the waters in his garment and established all the ends of the earth? And what is his name and his son's name? Surely you know. And it may be that Agur in writing this is saying, God, I want to know you. Courageously. I want to know. I want the truth. What is his name? What is his son's name? What Agur ultimately is asking is who's been there and back again and it's not Bilbo Baggins. Because as I said, Jesus didn't go there and come back. He came from there before returning. And he's going to come here again. In verse 13, go back to John chapter 3 now. Jesus makes this statement. And you know, I, the last couple of teachings, I haven't done the points like I normally try and give you a point, an outline to follow through. That's because each verse is a point. 
So, you got like five points in this sermon. You know, verse 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15. There are your points. But in verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who has first descended. I added the word first, but that's what he's saying. But he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. No one else has done this. Understand that. No one who's written a book about dying and going to heaven has come from there first. Mohammed did not come from there first. What he claimed was, he went off to a far off place, jumped on his horse, rode there, tied up his horse, and took a midnight ride to heaven. But he didn't come from there. Which immediately makes his claims less than the claims of Jesus. I mean, before you even start to work out the difference between Islam and Christianity and Judaism and, and try to understand religions and world religions, you got to understand, Jesus made a claim nobody else made. I came from there. I descended, and then I went back. Or I will go back. And what Jesus is saying here to Nicodemus as he ties in these words of the old proverb is he is speaking both about his incarnation, he had descended from heaven, and his future, at this point, when he's saying this, his ascension when he would return to heaven. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 10, Paul writes, He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And by the way, the descension of Jesus was far more than simply to earth. He who descended came to earth, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and He was crucified, and He descended further. Literally going to the depths of Hades in His death. Acts chapter 1, verse 9. We're told that after He had said these things, He had been talking to the apostles, they're on the Mount of Olives there, eastern side of Jerusalem. After He had said these things, He was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received Him out of their sight. He ascended. I love the story. As they were gazing intently into the sky, while He was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them, and they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? Mouths hanging open and everything? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you watched Him go into heaven. He's going to come right back down. He will descend again. The Bible tells us He will set foot on the Mount of Olives. Same place I believe He stepped off, He's going to step back. He who descended is also He who ascended and who will yet descend again. Isn't the potentiality of His incarnation and His ascension and His return, isn't that at least worth investigating? This man who claimed these remarkable things, isn't it at least it worth a few minutes of your time, of your day, to sit down and go, i got to think about this. No other book on any other shelf claims what Jesus claimed. Yet people are buying those books by droves. Books that say all you got to do is die and you're going to float into the light happily. Well, wait a minute. What if I don't? What if something at a cell level was just kind of popping in your brain? We don't know. Talk to Dr. Mark. He'll tell you. In fact, what Mark will tell you is far more books... Well, books are not written, but far more stories are told of people going into hellish darkness when they flatline. You don't hear those stories. 
My descent into hell. You're like a black cover with red words. I I just don't think that's going to (laughs) sell. Someone brings it to the publisher. Look, I died. It was horrific. Terrifying. I wrote it all up. What do you think? Is it a book? (laughs) Jesus said, this is what I did. I descended and I ascended. Remember what he said to Nathaniel? John 1.51, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Just like Jacob who had the dream of the ladder, the angels of God ascending and descending on the ladder, and he's saying, as we talked about, I'm the ladder, Nathaniel. It's me. I'm the guy. Not only has he descended and ascended, he himself is the ladder. He's the only way to ascend. He's the only way to heaven. There's no other way even to get there. You read all the books you want. It's not going to get you there. Only Jesus. And and this is the radical uniqueness of following Jesus. Listen, get this. Every religion in history is earth up. It's about ascending. It's about getting better. Making yourself better. Working your way up through acts of righteousness up to heaven. It's earth up. Only Christianity is heaven down. He descended. He came from there to rescue us from our sin. Every other faith faith is based on works. Earth up. Man trying to ascend. I mentioned two of them. Islam, Mormonism. They are earth up religions. You've got to do these things to reach. And Jesus said, I descended. I came to where you were. Only Christianity is based on God coming down, heaven down, by a great grace. And understand this. Before Jesus would ascend, first He had to descend for your sake and for mine. And then He had to be lifted up. Verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Stop right there. Another example that the Bible answer man of Israel, Nicodemus, would be completely familiar with. You know the snake in the wilderness story, Jesus says? You all familiar with that story? It's a remarkable story. You can turn there or I'll just read it to you. Numbers chapter 21. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Fourth book in the Bible. And in Numbers 21, which Jesus raises in this conversation with Nicodemus, beginning about verse 4. Numbers 21 verse 4. Talking about the children of Israel, they're in the desert, they're in the wandering season. And we're told that they set out from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. People becoming impatient. I've never seen that. Verse 5. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. Okay, you just said there was no food. What you really mean is you just don't like what mom put on the table. (laughs) Or dad, in this case. So there is food, you just don't like it. 
And there has to be water or you wouldn't even have the breath to complain like you're complaining right now. They're whining, they're complaining again. Do you know the Torah addresses the grumbling of Israel 16 times? That's how many times that these people who were led out of Egypt rescued, through the Red Sea, rescued, fed by God, manna in the wilderness, rescued, a quail to eat when they didn't want the bread they wanted meat, rescued, water from the rock, rescued, over and over and over God rescued them, and over and over and over they grumbled. Are you a grumbler? Last week the waterfall was a little loud. We turned it off. We turned it off. And if it was you, I get it. It's cool. I understand. You know, maybe maybe you weren't grumbling. Maybe you were one who just said, "Hey, that was kind of loud. Is there something we can do about that?" We had grumbling last week. I'm like, for a waterfall? Just turn off the sound, man. It's cool. We'll, we'll be fine. What's turn? It's not a big deal. It's just a waterfall. It's amazing to me. The things that I grumble about. I had to shift into the first person because I didn't want to sit here and just shake a finger. It is amazing. And no one knows better than my wife. (laughs) The things that I grumble about and complain about. Are you a grumbler? Maybe you're someone who just complains about grumblers. (laughs) Kind of makes you a grumbler. This is tough, but it's true. And I had to swallow this myself this week. Grumbling always reveals a lack of faith. Grumbling is earth talk. Grumbling is flesh. It is not part of the heavenly vocabulary. You know what the heavenly vocabulary says? Hey, if we have a problem, no big deal. God is in the heavens and He's going to take care of everything. We've got an issue, no big deal. No worry. That's heaven talk. Earth talk is... I don't know if I like that new baptistry. I'm not sure. Kind of loud. Can we turn Rick up? No, that, that would hurt my ears. You know, I mean... The Bible says, and I have to pause on this because it is so important, my friends, Philippians 4.14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Husbands and wives, can we say that in our marriages? Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That is a command. Why is that such a big deal, Paul? Because we're part of the we of witnesses. We are witnesses. Well, no one sees what goes on in my family. Your children do. Why should we do all things without grumbling or disputing? So you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. The witnesses that are part of the we. But the children are complaining. The desert's hot. The water's lacking. And this banana bread is the worst. So, God sends fiery, poisonous snakes among them. you got to dig God's style. You're complaining? I will give you something to complain about. And so, here come the snakes. Ever have one of those snake dreams? I hate those. I used to get them all the time when I was a kid, you know? 
Snakes on the floor. You can't get out of bed because there are snakes everywhere. I had a babysitter tell me that once. Don't get out of bed because there are invisible snakes all over your floor. I want to hunt her down. That is child abuse. I'm calling her, calling her. Come here, you get bit. She finally came in. What? What's wrong with you? I got to go to the bathroom. I don't want to get bit. Anyway, so God sends the snakes, verse 6, fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. That should tell us what God thinks of our grumbling. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you intercede with the Lord that He may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. It's the only time the people of Israel ever came to Moses and said, Pray for us. And he does. And the Lord, what he tells Moses to do is the weirdest thing I think he ever told Moses to do. And there were a lot of weird ones. This was this takes the cake. Make a fiery serpent, verse 8, and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard, and it came about that if the serpent bit any man, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Understand this. Snake on a pole. Make a pole, put a snake on it. Now, we assume because of the medical uh, picture that it was a snake was wrapped around the pole. Right? Well, that actually comes from a pagan background. So, it's entirely possible that Moses made a pole and put a serpent on it. A bronze serpent. I, I can't say for certain, but I wonder if the serpent on the pole did not look like a cross. Why would you say that? Well, why a bronze serpent in the first place? Bronze is the color of judgment. People would understand that. They would look and they would realize we got a bronze pole, a picture of judgment with a snake on it. These snakes are not a fluke. This is not just, we didn't just happen upon, you know, a viper pit accidentally here in the wilderness. This, these are sent by God. This is judgment for our grumbling. It's not an accident. Judgment. Bronze. But why, why not a bronze man? You know? Or, or, or something bronze. Why a snake? Why a serpent? Because a serpent represents slithering, hissing, sinful behavior. There is no more stark picture in the entire Bible of sin than a serpent. And everybody knows that. Ask a non-Christian. What does a serpent represent, do you think, spiritually? Oh, man, it's sin. Everyone knows. A big picture of sin on a stick. And there was no power in the bronze snake. It's not like lightning flashed and things came out. People would look up, you know. It just sat there. They were not to touch it. They were not to hold it. They were not to worship it, although people would hide it away and later on they would worship it and Hezekiah would have to break it to pieces because they held on to it for an idol, which was not God's intent whatsoever. What the Lord said was, put the serpent on the pole and tell the people to look. And all they have to do is look. Listen, all they had to do, look, and you're saved. Look, and you're healed. And I wonder if there wasn't someone in Israel who's like, I'm not looking at that thing. I'm just, no, no way, I'm not going to look at that thing. And they died because they refused to look. Isaiah 45, 22. 
the Lord says, look at me and be saved. Look at me and be saved. All the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. Look at me. Again, what do parents say to their kids who are in trouble? Look at me. Why doesn't a child want to look at a parent? Because the child doesn't want to confess. Doesn't want to be caught. Doesn't want to be found out. If I don't look, maybe they won't know. (laughs) I just adore my kids. But that's one of the funniest things in the world. When they're in trouble and they will not look at you. God says, look at me. You don't want to look at me? Look at the standard I've set up for you. And the Lord, listen, the Lord was doing more than saving the people of Israel in the moment. He was securing a sign in the desert. Right then and there, something so bizarre, yet so recognizable, no one could miss it. A serpent lifted up on a pole, the cross of Jesus. Now you all know that. Well, for Christ the cross. Think about how remarkable that is. That back in the wilderness, God was saying, I'm going to do something right now. So that later on I can tell Nicodemus this was what I was doing. I'm going to bring revelation to what was going on back there. This was not about immediate healing. It was a picture of death, of sin, of complaining and grumbling, of where you go on your own, of the flesh, and of judgment. But if you look at the cross, I will save you. Just look. That's what Jesus was saying. And note this, it was not John, it wasn't Paul, it wasn't Peter or any of the apostles who compared our perfect Jesus to a snake. It was Jesus who did that. Those who say, I don't like this idea of a serpent on a pole being a picture of Jesus on the cross. Jesus said, no, I'll give you the picture. It's, it's a picture of me. Why would he say that? Why would Jesus compare himself to the prime picture of sin in the Bible, the serpent? He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Or put another way, the lamb became the snake. The Son of God looked like a serpent. He was so soaked with our sin on the cross. Do do we even comprehend how far Jesus descended to do that? He didn't just put on human flesh. That would have been enough. He descended all the way to being lifted up on the cross. Philippians 2.8 He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Look at me! And be saved, he says. Look at the cross. How can anyone look at Jesus on the cross and not be affected by that? And not be moved by that? How can you look at Jesus on the cross and not see the love of God? Look at Jesus lifted up. He'll use the phrase two more times in the Gospel of John. John 8, 28. He says, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me when I am lifted up. John 12, 32. He says, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Because there is nothing more compelling than the cross of Jesus Christ. Nothing. 
That's why Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. That's it. That's our message. Because the cross is so compelling. And by the way, for Jesus, the cross was always the end game. There was never a plan B. It was always the pass to curse. <laughs> curse the football player from Wilson, the quarterback. It was the Seahawks fans, help me out here. <laughs> You know, that's why we were talking about this. We heard about this yesterday, actually, at the men's conference. But uh, apparently, Russell Wilson was on the sidelines going up and down among his guys saying, I'm going to pass the ball to Curse, and it will win the game. Curse, who had dropped five. Wilson, who had thrown four interceptions at that point, right? Four interceptions? Something like that. It was ridiculous. And he's going up and down saying, I'm going to throw the ball to Curse, and he's going to win the game. What? It's crazy. That was Russell Wilson's plan. That was the end game. I'm going to take off curse because here comes the ball. That was Jesus' end game. The cross was the end game from the very beginning, from the foundation of the earth. It was never, well, we'll do that if we have to. Not my will, but yours be done, Jesus said. No other option. The cross was not the result of His coming. It was the reason for His coming. He came to die. Just as surely as the Bible says, we must be born again, so Jesus said He must be lifted up. Even so, must the Son of Man be lifted up. But listen, this term speaks not only of His humiliation in death, but it reveals His glorious ascension. The word lifted up, the Son of Man must be lifted up, is hupsuo in the Greek. And it means lifted up, as in Jesus on the cross. It also means exalted, as in Jesus in His ascension. It works both ways. Peter uses the same word in Acts 2.33 saying, Therefore, having been exalted, lifted up to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured uh, poured forth this which you both see and hear. He's done this. What Peter says is if you look at Jesus, if you look to Jesus in faith, lifted up as a sacrifice, exalted as the Christ, then we receive from Him what He received from the Father. Don't get lost in the words. If you look at Jesus lifted up on the cross and exalted to the heavens, if you look at Jesus, if you look to Jesus, you get something. You receive something, Peter says, from the Father. What's that? The Holy Spirit. Listen again. Peter, Acts 2.33, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. He's talking about the Holy Spirit movement that was happening there on Pentecost. He's saying the reason this happened is because Jesus was exalted. He was exalted. The Father gave Jesus the Spirit. Jesus said, here, and dumped the power of the Spirit on the apostles. That's what you're seeing here. The Holy Spirit of promise. That we could be born again, and listen, born again, and exalted. That you, that I, am not only able to be born again, but lifted up. Just as Christ Jesus was lifted up. 
How do you know that? Because Jesus says, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, verse 15, so that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. That's the deal. Rarely does a day go by that I don't utter the words, Come Lord Jesus. It's, it's a mantra for me. It's probably not the best word to use. I'm not like, oh, come look. No. I, <laughs> rarely does a day go by that something doesn't happen where I don't just say, come Lord Jesus. Why? Because, gang, listen, I don't want eternal life. Here. I don't want eternal life in this place. I don't want this. Thank you, Lord, for giving me this. I, I, I'm not grumbling <laughs> or complaining. I don't want this life. I don't want here. I don't want now. I am blessed with a a wonderful wife, fantastic kids, an amazing church, family and friends. I, I love my life, don't get me wrong, but I just don't want it. I don't want this life. I don't want to live here. Who does? Who among us wants to live in fallen humanity? We have been at this thing 6,000 years of Western civilization and it stinks. We are not better, gang. We're as bad as we've ever been. This world is as bad as it's ever been. This is not, (laughs) Kenny, this is not the unimaginable life. There's no such thing by human effort. You will never earth up into the unimaginable life. Only heaven down. Only Christ come down. Who wants to live with humanity's heartbreaks and heartaches and wars and murders and brutalities and sorrows and sicknesses and death? Who really wants that? And we hear these, you know, fables and stories across time of the water of, you know, someone, uh, drink this water and you can live eternally, you know, and the movies and the, all that stuff. Who would want to? Really? Would, would you want to find the fountain of youth? Not me. I don't want another season of this. I don't want to go around again. I want to go out. <laughs> like Elijah, really, is what I want to do. The appeal of eternal life in Jesus when He says so that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. The appeal of eternal life in Jesus is the exalted life. Not the unimaginable life. The exalted life. Life in the Son. That's what He invites us to. That Christians, that's what you have. How can we grumble when we have life in the Son? How can we worry when we have life in the sun? How can we stress? Yes, we've got to deal with this life right now, but that life's a coming, and I can't wait. Come, Lord Jesus. And Jesus said in John 17, 3, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Gang, if you're still wondering like Nicodemus did, how can these things be? I'll give you one more verse. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. You have a choice this morning. Walk away, or hear and stay. Make the choice. Look to yourself, or look to the exalted Christ. Let's stand up together.